Uh, Mark chapter 14, it's on page 719 of the Red Bibles, and we're reading from verse 1 through to 52. So that might take us a little while, that's okay. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. 
But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. <clears throat> then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man, wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Amen. Okay, well let's um, pray and then think about this um, passage which has been read by Fiona a little earlier, and uh, we'll try and get a handle on what's going on. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time now that we can think about uh, this serious passage in Mark's Gospel and we pray that you'd help us to understand it clearly and benefit from it ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as a young man, I can recall travelling out to Narendra and on the way visiting a place called Snake Gully, which is just out of Gundagai. And it was there I came into contact with the dog on the tucker box and uh, the story of that dog on the tucker box. Has anyone been to Gundagai and seen the dog on the tucker box? Okay. Well, I was intrigued to learn that that was a faithful dog. Apparently, uh, the monument was set up to, to remember his faithfulness. Uh, one version of the story goes that the dog had a role in pioneering times when Australia was being developed and settled. It was thought that the dog was guarding his master's tucker box and whatever other possessions the master had, while the master was seeking some help because he got bogged in a creek with his bullock team. The master, the driver of the bullock team, so say, doesn't return, unfortunately, for the dog. 
and the dog continues to wait there on that tucker box until itself it dies. Well, the origins of that story of the faithful dog are a bit shrouded in mystery. They might come from uh, the days of a, an anonymous poem, perhaps written by someone who was a bullock driver waiting around. Uh, but as a kid, it gripped me as I thought about the faithfulness of that dog and as I looked at the monument, and I thought, hmm, that poor dog. Imagine sitting there just waiting and the master doesn't return home. Well, today's story, we have another story of faithfulness in the Bible, but it doesn't come just from an anonymous author. Uh, it comes from faithful eyewitnesses. And the results of today's stories of faithfulness are far more profound and far-reaching than the results of the dog who waited around for his master who didn't turn up. In this part of the Bible, we see that the tension begins to build. Uh, it's building between Jesus and the religious elite. It was back in chapter 12 that Jesus told them a parable about the vineyard and he'd spoken that parable against the leaders and the leaders understood it. They were saying that the owner of the vineyard uh, will send his son and his son will be killed by the tenants and Jesus was saying the leaders are going to kill him. They understood that and at the end of the parable Jesus says God's going to judge because he says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now that vineyard's a sort of a reference to Israel and the promised land. And in line with what Jesus says, the vineyard does go to others because in chapter 13 he starts to warn them about the destruction of the temple. In the year AD 69, there'd been a series of emperors who'd changed hands and Vespasian was on his way to Rome uh, in the year 69. When his adopted son Titus uh, marched on Jerusalem, he entered Jerusalem with the help of hundreds of Roman soldiers, burnt the temple, destroyed the city and crucified thousands of Jews. And as Jesus said, the vineyard was given to others. Well, the Jewish leaders didn't like Jesus uh, saying these things and they waited for a time to get him. But because he was popular with the people, they held off. And so they left him and then went away. And that's where we really pick it up again in this part of the story. The, the tension builds again like a storm that brews and is about to break. Once again, the leaders plan to move against Jesus. The Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread were only two days away and the chief priests and the teachers were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus. Not during the feast, they said, or the people might run riot. It's interesting, when it's Passover time, Jerusalem swelled to about four times the amount of people that it normally had. And so with uh, nationalistic feelings about you know, remembering their liberation from Egypt as they celebrated the Passover. They might have been worried that the, that nationalism was going to overflow as they uh, were unhappy about the Romans also being over them. The people aren't against Jesus. And so the leaders are looking for a, a secret way, a sly way to get hold of him. But how would they do it? Well, that's a good question, and Mark comes back to it a little bit later on. But if you notice that this is a bit of a bizarre situation, 
there's a group of people here who think they're at the centre of God's plans. They're the chief priests, the elders and the scribes. They think they're right on the inside when it comes to being inside God's kingdom. But instead, they turn out to be the outsiders, don't they? Because they're rejecting and they're ready to um, capture Jesus, the Messiah, and they're against him. They think they're on the inside and have the inside running with God and they might look that way, but it turns out that those on the inside are really outsiders. In the next story, there's a couple of people that we come across who would be thought to be seen as outsiders. Simon the leper. The lepers were on the outside and there's an unnamed woman. She might not have been much according to the ruling elite too. These people look like they're on the outside But when it comes to God's kingdom, they are seen to be right on the inside. In this next story, Jesus reclines at the table of Simon the leper and he's prepared for burial. It's likely that Simon the leper has already been cleansed of his leprosy because normally the the lepers uh, put themselves away from the community so they didn't reinfect anybody else. And it's possible that Jesus has already healed Simon the leper. During the meal, Jesus experiences great kindness from an unnamed woman. It's possibly um, Mary, we see that in John's Gospel, a parallel kind of an account, who's the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And she takes an alabaster jar uh, full of expensive perfume. The perfume's described as a pure nard, it's not been watered down, and it's probably very expensive because it comes from a plant that's somewhere around India, a long way away. She breaks the jar open and the significance of that is that they're not going to use the jar again. It's, it's kind of broken and she pours the whole thing out on Jesus' head. I'm sure it stayed longer on Jesus' head than it would have stayed on my head. Somebody mentioned to me in the end of the nine o'clock service. <laughs> and she does something very kind and beautiful to Jesus. But there's people who have a whinge and they have a go at Jesus, a go at the woman for this act of kindness. And Jesus corrects them. He reminds them that they will always have the poor with them and they can do for the poor whatever they like, whenever they like, but they won't always have Jesus. And he tells us that this, this act of pouring out the perfume has been done in anticipation of his burial. The time for Jesus in the story now is short and it was the right time for the woman to open the seal. It's also another good moment for Jesus to to remind the disciples about the kind of Messiah that he was. They're, They're kind of finding it hard to grasp the idea that he's going to die but he reminds them that he'll soon be buried. Well, what can we take away from this part of the Bible, from this woman's act of kindness and devotion to Jesus? Well, she certainly sees that Jesus is worthy of something very expensive and wonderful. We can see that she does love Jesus and she's prepared to show that love by using this perfume for what she thinks is the best possible use for it. Although she might have been considered an outsider as far as uh, that society was concerned, and the, ver- and the ruling elite, she remains very much someone who loves Jesus and is part of uh, one of those insiders who inherit 
God's kingdom. But if we were back there at the time, what would we think of her? If we were in that situation, what would you think of her? Well, we might think it's a bit extravagant. But she really becomes a, a model disciple, doesn't she? she? She exchanges, because of her faith in love for Jesus, she's willing to sacrifice this great expense. But in the next story, we see a contrast to that with Judas, who did have faith in Jesus, and he exchanges his faith in Jesus for some silver coins, for some money. I'll pick it up in verse 10 if you read along. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Well, why was there a change of heart in Judas? Have you thought about that? Why did he do what he did? Was it the loot that uh, got to him? He decided he needed that, that 30 pieces of silver. It doesn't tell us how much money in Mark's gospel. Well, elsewhere we find out it's 30 pieces of silver. Or was that just money to secure the contract with the chief priests? Did Judas come to realise that, yes, Jesus is really going to die and if there's a time to get out, now's the time to do it? Was that what prompted him? Some have even uh, suggested that Judas loved Jesus so much that he wanted to help Jesus to be the, the ransom for many. He loved Jesus so much that he wanted to help him on his way to death. But that kind of ridiculous perspective that Jesus loved Jesus and so he betrayed him doesn't really square too well with what Jesus has to say about how whoever betrays the Son of Man, it would be better for him if he hadn't been born. Uh, so Jesus does give a warning about that in the Last Supper. Ultimately, the Bible doesn't say what Judas's motives were, but we do know that he knew where Jesus was going to be after the Passover meal. And he watched for a time when he could betray Jesus into the hands of the chief priests. Well, in the next section, we have a record of the memorial meal that Jesus hands down. They made preparations for the Passover. And it was a Passover that Jesus longed to have with his disciples. But it's a Passover with a difference. He builds on the ideas of the Passover and hands down a new meal. It's a bit of a surprise party, actually. But unlike most surprise parties uh, where there's a fair bit of joy, this one's a sad one. And in this Last Supper, Jesus builds on the theme of the salvation of the Passover. The Passover reminded the Jews about their salvation from Egypt to the Promised Land by means of a sacrificial lamb. And here Jesus doesn't refer to uh, a lamb that they should partake in, but he, he takes the bread and says it's his body given for us. Paul links the idea of what Jesus is doing with the Passover in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, when he says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And so we see that Jesus is building on that picture. Furthermore, Jesus takes the cup of wine at the Passover meal and he attaches the concept or the idea that it's a, his blood. It reminds us of his blood that's sacrificed for many. 
It represents the blood of the covenant poured out for many. Now, when Moses uh, formalised the covenant between God and his people at Mount Sinai, uh, we're told that he took blood and threw it in various places uh, and said, this is the blood of the covenant. Uh, And the people agreed that God would be their God and they would be God's people. And so Jesus is saying the new covenant is now in his blood. Throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus has already talked about the fact that he would die. He said in Mark 31, he must be rejected, suffer, die and rise again. In Mark 10.45, we're told the Son of Man came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And here in Mark 14, we're told this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. The writer reminded us that the old covenant uh, had limitations. The people could offer sacrifices and go away thinking of themselves as forgiven. Uh, But the fact was they they continued those sacrifices year after year and the writer to the Hebrews tells us that it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, to deal with sin completely. But in the sacrificial death of Jesus, he establishes the new covenant and it's the complete means of our cleansing from sin. And as we take the cup and have the cup, it's a reminder of the cleansing that's founded on Jesus' blood. It's God's grace to us, isn't it, that we get to celebrate that Lord's Supper um, regularly, that it's a repeated meal, because it reminds us about what Jesus has done. When we have the Lord's Supper, it's not something magical, it's accompanied with words, and we remember that his work is the foundation for our salvation. And God calls us to be people who continually trust in what he's done, and to take hold of it by trusting him. Now, if you're a person who hasn't yet come to that point in life where you have relied on the work of Jesus for your salvation, uh, today's as good a day as any to wrestle with what Jesus has done for his people. And let me encourage you to speak to, I'm happy to talk to you, or Scott, the elders, or a Christian friend, about how to be sure that you are right with God by trusting in what Jesus has done. Well, after the Lord's Supper, they sing a hymn and go to the Mount of Olives and Jesus gives them warnings about falling away. Jesus knows their limits and so this is what he says in verse 27, if you're reading along there with me. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He's being frank about the fact that they're not going to handle things well after... He's seized and handed over. Peter, in his passion, uh, denies that that's going to happen, as do the rest of them. They all said the same kind of thing. We won't fall away. But we see that what Jesus says comes to pass by the time we get to verse 50 in our chapter. Now, the topic of falling away can be quite a tricky one. I think the... uh, you know, references to falling away with these specific words are only found in the Gospels. And we're reminded that the, um, the disciples, apart from Judas, don't fall away for long. They, they fall back in. They no longer remain fallen away. They come back to the Lord. We even see that in chapter 16 when they're going to meet Jesus at his resurrection around Galilee. 
And throughout the New Testament, we have reminders about assurance of salvation, that we can be sure that nothing will separate us from the love of God. If you love God and you've got your trust in Jesus, you can be sure that you can hold on to God and you won't be separated. But there is a balance. There are passages also which are warnings to us that remind us to be watchful and to make sure that we don't fall away. This week in uh, our Bible study group, we've been looking at some of those passages. In 1 Corinthians, Paul refers to the people who were coming out of Egypt, how although some saw the mighty acts of God, some of them didn't ultimately end up inheriting the promised land. And he says, these things are written down as warnings for us on whom the ages have found their fulfilment. The challenge for us is not to be like them, but to be people who stand firm. And he says so. In 1 Corinthians 10, he says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So we need to be watchful that we do persevere as God's people. Paul then encourages the Corinthian church to flee from idolatry, to flee from sin, and to make sure they don't indulge in it. And so the challenge stands for us as well. If we're going to stand firm as God's people, we need to flee from sin, not to live in it. Well, having dealt with the topic of falling away, Jesus moves into the Garden of Gethsemane. And in this part of the Bible, we're really standing uh, on what, what might be called holy ground. It's a fairly serious uh, section of the Bible, the tone of it. We find that Jesus is greatly distressed and yet he's faithful. He goes deeper into the Garden with Peter, James and John and calls them to keep watch and to pray, perhaps and most likely so that they're not falling into temptation to fall away. But on three occasions he finds them sleeping and not praying, and they fail. They fail to continue in prayer and in watch. Jesus becomes overwhelmed with sorrow and distress. I'll pick it up in verse 33 if you're reading on. He took Peter, James and John along with him, And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Jesus doesn't want to die. Uh, It seems that he's saying, this anguish is killing me, in other language. It's so much for him. Stay here and keep watch. Verse 35, going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible the hour might pass from him. Abba Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And after correcting the disciples, Mark records in verse 39 that once more he went away and he prayed the same thing. He's praying to Abba Father, which is an Aramaic expression for an affectionate term for someone's father. Three times he prays that the hour will pass or the cup will be taken away. That, the idea of the cup is the, is the judgment of God or the wrath of God for sins. That's an idea that comes out of the Psalms and Isaiah. And he's asking that there might be some other way that he can come to his kingdom without suffering and dealing with sin. Why is Jesus so distressed, though? What's causing him to be overwhelmed? 
Is it the mere thought of the physical suffering and the thought of dying? Other people at different times in history have faced uh, suffering, well, they've faced death uh, without the same degree of anguish. There's a Greek philosopher, Socrates, who was forced to drink hemlock and he apparently takes it philosophically even though his followers get upset. There have been other Christian martyrs who've died without this kind of anguish about uh, facing the prospect of death. And so it raises the question of why Jesus is so anguished. Well, some Christians have come to the conclusion that it's not for trivial reason that Jesus is overwhelmed. They've understood that Jesus understands his death to be a sin-bearing death where he's separated in fellowship as he bears sin. The, the father turns his face away is one way to put it. It's difficult to comprehend this unique event, but it seems that they're there for the first time in history or eternity, the Godhead is split apart in a way that's hard to understand or comprehend. But Jesus doesn't seem to reach these depths of sorrow for trivial reasons. And I'm inclined to believe that uh, there is the horror, not just of the physical pain of being crucified, but somehow the, the horror of um, being separated from God and, and bearing sin that, that prompts his distress. But what's also remarkable in this passage is that he remains faithful to God and to God's people. He prays that there might be some other way for God's will to be done, to come to God's kingdom, to bear sin, apart from the cross. But we get an answer when Judas comes with a delegation with swords and clubs and hands Jesus over. Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss so that those coming to get him might know which one Jesus is. And they come to him with swords and clubs. But Jesus has a different kind of movement. So he, he kind of raises the idea of why, why it is that they've come with the swords and clubs and why didn't they get him while he was in the public places. He hasn't uh, drummed up an army of revolutionaries who are about to wage war against the Romans and take over. His kingdom's not of this world. It's a different kind of kingdom movement. He comes to his kingdom by suffering. And as these people come to seize him, we read in verse 50 a fulfilment of what Jesus has said about how they will fall away. Verse 50 says, Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked leaving his garment behind. And so we see the words fulfilled, that they all fall away and disown Jesus. And verse 51 could be a reference to Mark speaking about himself. That's, that's possible. Well, at the start, we looked at a story of faithfulness, didn't we? We thought about the dog on the tucker box and how he was faithful to his master. Unfortunately, the, that story turned out badly for... Um, both people, didn't it? The master doesn't make it back and the dog dies. Uh, but there's no real value in that dog's sacrifice and faithfulness. 
I must say, when I first learnt about the story of the dog and the tucker box, that story did affect me emotionally. I thought it was a very good story about that faithful dog. Uh, and it made me sad too as I thought about the poor dog. But I tell you what, this is a much better story about faithfulness, isn't it? This is a much better story that should grip our hearts emotionally. Because Jesus' faithfulness wasn't a waste of time and energy. It wasn't a waste of sorrow. The results of his faithfulness are profound and they're far-reaching for our lives too. Through his faithfulness, he pays the price that's required to deal with our sins, to bring us forgiveness and give us new life with God. And it's a story of faithfulness that should impact us. It should be gripping our hearts and causing us to be thankful. It should be resulting in our praise of God, shouldn't it? And also to thank God for his faithfulness to us. So let's remember this story of the faithfulness of Jesus who brings about our salvation through his faithfulness. Let us pray. Our Lord God, we thank you for this story today about how Jesus was getting ready for his burial. We thank you that uh, he was faithful, even though he was distressed, that he sought to do your will and come to his kingdom by suffering. Lord, we thank you that uh, he was faithful to you and to us, that he achieves our salvation, that his death was a sin-bearing sin-bearing death and sacrifice for our sins. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be people who do stand firm and continue not to indulge in sin but to flee from it and to continue with our trust in Jesus, our Lord and Saviour, who has achieved for us salvation through his work and obedience. We thank you for this passage which reminds us of these things this morning and we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.